too dark. 일어나 싫어이. 하? 시진한 카쿠스. White skin makes up for seven physical defects. Growing up in Japan, my grandmother often told me this old Japanese proverb. She was very concerned about my dark complexion, particularly in comparison to my older sister's white skin. While my sister's skin just turns red and then back to white after any long exposure to the sun, I tan easily. And while my sister preferred to stay indoors, I spent much of my childhood playing outside. Despite the unwanted attention to my dark skin as a child and having the understanding that it could be viewed as a deficit, I had little opinion about it, and I continued to enjoy playing outside. This, however, would soon change in my mid-twenties when I moved to Southern California for college. While continuing to have ties to my family and friends in Japan, indeed, I learned that my skin attracts different reactions from different audiences. Cultural preference for white skin in Japan has existed for many years, and it has a gendered dimension. White skin is a particularly important trait for Japanese women. Light skin has long been integral to the concept of femininity and beauty in Japan, and as early as the 8th century, court women used white powder to lighten their faces to appear more attractive. This deeply rooted preference for light skin was further fueled by exposure to Western cultures and their glorification of white skin. However, since young girls are not yet concerned about their appearance to the opposite sex for dating and later marriage, pressure for white skin has little relevance for them. So other than my grandmother's words, I received few comments about my skin. I, like my friends, enjoyed playing outside and going to swimming pools and beaches, often without sunscreen, and I loved my dark skin. As I grew older, my dark skin became more problematic for others. I began to face pressure from my family and friends to perform white skin preserving and promoting practices, although I still enjoyed outdoor activities and loved my tan skin. In Japan, students entered high school at the age of 15. My high school required that every student become affiliated with a club. And since I was not very athletic, I first considered joining a club that involved some sort of indoor activity. However, I met a guy representing the swim club, and he told me they were looking not only for swimmers but also managers. Since I loved being outdoors and near water, I decided to join the swim club as a manager. I spent many after school hours and endless summer days by the pool. Often joining the swimmers in the pool to stay cool. Consequently, I was always tanned, and my mom and friends would make negative comments, such as, You are too dark. You will get aging spots when you get older. You should put on sunscreen lotion. I despised their remarks, though admittedly I did begin using sunscreen and whitening lotion, at least occasionally. I was not motivated by a desire for lighter skin. I loved my tan, 
but I was motivated to perform being a proper girl in the Japanese high school context. As a young adult in Japan, as a junior college student, and later as a full time corporate worker, I started to pay more attention to my skin. I was not particularly focused on whiteness, though I began to feel pressure to wear makeup every day. In fact, for women not to wear makeup outside the home is considered intolerable in Japan, and even today, my now 70 year old mom applies makeup each day. Feeling the pressure to conform to the norm, I began investing in facial skincare and makeup products. And as with my mother, applying them became my morning routine. I wanted to fit in with my peers, older female colleagues, and overall cultural expectations attached to young women in Japan, although my practices concerning skin lightening were limited. However, since I spent the majority of my time indoors, my skin remained light, and during this time, it was much lighter than in my youth. My environment changed drastically at age 26 when I moved to Southern California for school. I was, for the first time, exposed to racially and ethnically diverse groups of people around me, and I developed a diverse group of friends while in college. Meanwhile, as an international student, I was not allowed to legally work in the United States, which gave me a lot of leisure time to visit the beach with friends. This resulted in very dark, tan skin. I loved being tanned year round, and I felt even more closer to my darker skinned friends. I remember one time sitting next to an African American student, and my arms were darker than hers. However, my dark skin was challenged by different sets of audiences. Due to the cultural preference for white skin, Many Asian and Asian American friends frequently shared their alarm about my dark complexion. I remember some of them asking me why I liked to go to the beach and risk getting tanned, or why I did not wear sunscreen. This negativity would follow me across the Pacific when I visited my family and friends in Japan. There, my very tanned skin was seen as deviant, particularly given my age. When I was a little girl, my dark complexion was somewhat acceptable. However, having dark skin as a woman in Japan is seen as very problematic. My mom would make comments such as, You are already old, so you should take care of your skin. Tanning will give you more aging spots, and your face already looks dirty with shimi, aka stains. My parents would also make comments about my dark skin, and some of them tried very hard to convince me to stay out of the sun and to make sure to wear sunscreen all the time. Soon, I began to find that my positive self image about my dark skin was under constant attack in Japan. My parents would also solicit questions from strangers, most often in public places, about whether I belonged in Japan. I phenotypically look Japanese, but my dark complexion confused them. I think that many saw me as a foreigner since they couldn't fathom the idea of a Japanese woman with dark skin. One afternoon, I was eating alone at a cafe and I sensed that the server was acting strangely towards me. After she asked what I wanted for lunch, 
she realized that I was indeed a Japanese. My fluent Japanese-speaking ability was a clue for this. She became more friendly and, with a puzzled look, asked, Why are you tan this much? On other occasions, I have noticed people move away from me in public spaces, such as public transportation. In Japan, people often avoid those who look foreign, and their behavior signaled to me that they perceived me as a foreigner and that my presence made them uncomfortable. After graduating with my bachelor's degree, I moved to Connecticut for my graduate work and later to Maryland for a professional position, which again gradually changed my skin tone. My skin lightened due to little exposure to the sun in the Northeast. Since then, while I have been in the United States, people have been indifferent about my skin tone, and some people have even made positive remarks about my shimi, my freckles. Meanwhile, my folks in Japan continue to make negative comments about my skin whenever I visit, particularly about my age spots, since I brazenly ignored their dire warnings while living in California. Over the years, I have noticed how people around me interpret and react to my changing complexion, and their appraisals are largely influenced by my gender, place, and age. There are different sets of cultural expectations about my skin tone associated with my gender as a female, my age as a marriageable age female, and the society that I happen to find myself in, whether in Japan or in the United States. However, despite the different views of my skin color, my self-image and confidence have not changed much. I love my skin. Sang Duk Ho In the early 1970s, I immigrated with my family, my parents, sister, grandparents, aunts, and uncle, from Kowloon, Hong Kong, to the United States. As I was growing up among a large family of immigrants, Skin color was something that was mentioned in passing, but as a young child, I never really understood the significance of my family's words until I became an adult. Compared to my two sisters, I am the lightest in skin color, and as a child, my uncle once asked me, seemingly offhandedly, how does it feel to be the prettiest? My aunt quickly shut down that conversation before I even had a chance to answer, but that was my first direct encounter with colorism. Chinese culture tends to be very focused on outward appearances. Many Chinese sayings have a lookism quality to them with a focus on the importance of being beautiful, or sang duk ho, which translates to born good-looking in Cantonese. This means having light skin, double-lined eyes, and a thin but not too thin body. I benefit from being light-skinned, though my husband liked, likes to tease me during the summers because I tan easily, and he jokingly calls me a farmer. In Chinese culture, class distinctions are often based on one's complexion, and the farmers, or working-class people, being darker in complexion because they work long hours outside in the sun, while the upper class remain inside and are thus paler in comparison. Eye shape is also important. I never fully understood the differences in how Chinese people regarded eye shape until I met my husband. 
He commented on my double-lined eyes, and when I asked him what he meant, he explained that double-lined eyes, those with a fold of skin on the eyelid, are desirable as they make Asian eyes look bigger and hence more westernized. I recall as a child that my grandparents would say that a person had moon jun nyan, squinty pig eyes, or shu nyan, rat eyes. Both terms depict negative characteristics of either being lazy like a pig or sneaky and untrustworthy like a rat. My grandparents believed that people with those eyes could never be trusted. A colleague who is Asian recently expressed her anger and frustration with her father-in-law, who commented on her daughter's small eyes. He suggested that his granddaughter should not smile because it made her eyes look even smaller. And when my cousin gave birth to her baby girl, my aunt mentioned how lucky her baby was to have such big eyes. This attention to physical appearance is not uncommon in many Asian families and manifests itself in other ways as well. When my daughter was a toddler, my mother said she was getting fat. Being a first-time mother who took every criticism about my child personally, I told her very pointedly that if she couldn't restrain herself from voicing those types of comments, we wouldn't visit her anymore. The irony is that I, too, was body-shamed as a child, though for being too skinny. Family members always wanted me to eat more, and when I wouldn't, they complained about how thin I was. Their criticisms brought me to tears more than once. My mother and aunts repeatedly told me that if I didn't finish my rice, I would end up marrying a husband with pockmarks or acne scars on his face for each piece of rice left in my bowl, or remind me of all the starving people in China who would love to eat my rice. Eventually, my response to their constant nagging was to tell them that they should send my leftover rice to all the starving people in China. Years later, after three pregnancies, my mother told me I was getting fat, even though I was only a size four. I was snarky and responded, I'm not fat, but you are getting fat. I grew up in the 1970s in New York City where other children often made fun of me for being Chinese. They made squinty eyes and ching-chong noises. Even today, racism persists. Before the start of each Chinese New Year, I take time out of my busy schedule to go to my children's school to teach about Chinese culture and hand out treats. Last year, I went to my son's seventh grade class and two of his classmates made those squinty eyes when I spoke about Chinese history. Their teacher didn't see this, but I did. I was infuriated. I noticed that one of the first things some people do to make fun of Asians is to mimic and mock our eyes. Such racist behavior has long-lasting effects, as many Asians undergo drastic procedures to make their eyes bigger. For me, this is the ultimate sign of self-hatred, as Asian women go to extreme measures to change their features their eyes, their skin, and their bodies, to match a westernized Caucasian standard. Knowing this, I have tried to raise my children to be proud of their Asian characteristics and to take pride in their Chinese identity, something I find challenging to do as I raise my children in the United States. 
As a new mother, I remember scouring the internet for beautiful Asian dolls for my daughter as a way to normalize Asian features for her. I wanted to, her to see dolls that looked like her. I couldn't find Asian dolls in the toy stores at that time. However, I was disappointed that all of the dolls were light in complexion, a reflection of a commonly held Asian standard of beauty that I had wanted to challenge. My generation doesn't have to perpetuate the same prejudices I grew up with. Parents can influence how their Asian children grow up in the United States by preparing them for prejudice in the real world and by giving them the necessary tools to encourage self-love and acceptance in the way they look. By sharing and talking openly about our experiences, we can break the cycle of self-hatred, teach our children to value who they are, and resist Asian and Western society's narrowly defined standards of beauty. As in Asia, we also live in a lookist culture, but encouraging a strong sense of self-confidence can be a formidable tool to combat colorism, both in the United States and in our Asian American communities. You're so white, you're so pretty. While Europeans tend to associate tan skin with leisure time, globetrotting, sportiness, and social status, Cambodians associate it with backwardness, unattractiveness, and low-class status. Upon my first week of arrival in Cambodia, the greeting my parents and I received from my cousin Vanny was, you're so white, you're so pretty. First of all, referring to Asians as white might sound utterly ridiculous to Westerners. Secondly, such shallow adulation bothered me. Growing up in the United States, we are taught that it is wrong to judge people by their skin color, never mind comment on it. There is nothing wrong with having white skin, but in the United States, we usually don't go around openly glorifying how pretty white skin is while at the same time degrading dark skin. In Cambodia, however, a common greeting is, Hi, you're so white, you're so beautiful, I'm dark and ugly. I wish I had a beautiful white skin like yours, or ew, you're so dark. Thirdly, if we have to define our skin color, my parents and I are not even white. We are srime, which means tan in the Khmer language. Upon hearing Vanny's partiality to white skin, I turned to look at my parents with disappointment. They gave me a don't blame your naive cousin, it's the Cambodian way look. She is a victim in all this, they later reminded me. I didn't buy it. To me, she was as much responsible for perpetuating this shallowness as anyone else. For goodness sake, she's a teacher, I said. It's, un it's Cambodia. That doesn't mean anything, said my father. Well, okay then. Vanny, with her skin like caramel and eyes like lotus petals, was so conditioned to see attractiveness in white skin when she was growing up that she is now blind to her own beauty. She often complains about being dark. You're beautiful the way you are, I reassured her. But I'm dark, she said, ashamed. I said, we're all born with different shades of color and we're all beautiful each in our own way. As long as you wash your body with soap and your hair with shampoo, you'll be clean, healthy, and beautiful. Skin color doesn't determine your beauty, wealth, and intelligence. Regardless of what others say, you shouldn't let it. Look at your two sons. 
Look at those big ebony eyes. They're gorgeous and smart kids. Her big dark eyes glazed over as though she didn't hear a thing, I said. They're dark, if only they had white skin. At this point, my eyes rolled to the back of my head. I got the same sentiment from another cousin. When I complimented him on his children, his response was, I wish they had white skin like their mother. His wife's face perked up and beamed with pride. I turned to look at the little four and five-year-old kids. They just sat there with doe eyes. The denigration of dark skin starts very young. Unfortunately, my cousins are not the only ones who buy into the white is pretty and black is ugly perception. As more high-rise buildings are constructed and roads are paved, Cambodians seem to have become even more self-conscious about their skin color. Country folks, instead of sporting their straw hats or krama, checkered scarves, are now donning cap scarves that cover their heads and faces, only showing their eyes. My father's cousin said, back in the day, we used to be able to tell each other apart and refer to each other by name. Now, if my buffalo or cow has gone missing, I don't even know who I am calling out to ask. They're all covered up from head to toe. And if you peeked into their bathrooms, as I have, you can see whitening products for their faces and bodies. Pale-skinned people, especially city-dwellers, generally display an air of superiority about themselves. As seen as, as, as seen as social events, temples, restaurants, and malls. They walk much taller, their noses stick higher in the air, and their demeanor is anything but inviting. Their children, too, are boosted with an air of self-confidence bestowed upon them since infancy. Friends and neighbors gather to admire light-skinned babies, no matter how unsightly they may be, as if they are the chosen ones. For me to witness this was like watching Rafiki, the wise old baboon in the film The Lion King, holding Simba aloft to anoint and show him off to the population of Pride Lands. These white babies are generally spoiled, coddled, and handed from one person to the next, showered with kisses and lavished with praises. Whose heavenly baby is this, and who is this smart and gorgeous little one, I hear them say. Dark-skinned people are often looked down upon by the pale ones, especially if the former is a peasant and ethnically Khmer. They tend to be timid and fearful and kotow to the light ones, to the point of crawling and prostrating themselves before them. If their kids are dark, no matter how attractive they may be, they tend to be ashamed of their appearance. Not all dark-skinned people and white-skinned people act this way, but too many of them sadly do. The problem lies in Cambodian society. Its obsession with skin color is an epidemic of epic proportions. Right out of Po Chin Tong International Airport and Siem Reap International Airport, we were greeted with images of white Asians on billboards and posters plastered on store walls and windows. Even the faces and bodies of Apsara dancers, which represent celestial beings from Hindu and Buddhist mythology, were paler than ghosts. In most arts, human subjects are not only portrayed as having porcelain skin, but also as lacking Khmer essence. Modern musicians also pay homage in their songs to the beauty of white skin. On the radio, I hear the lyrics, 
Your skin is white. You are beautiful. Whose daughter are you? I love you. And I'm not beautiful. I don't have white skin like the other people, like the other women, but I am loyal and honest. As for magazines, they are filled with airbrushed models with skin whiter than Caucasians. Even the so-called Cambodian supermodels consist of light, near-white Asian girls. For the one or two dark-skinned girls lucky enough to find their way into the glossy pages of a Cambodian fashion magazine, their bodies and faces are so thickly powdered they looked ashen, gray, and even clown-like. For the handful of existing Cambodian channels, movies, and music videos, dark-skinned people are rarely shown, let alone leading characters. Television hosts and hostesses consist mostly of white, light-skinned Asians. Commercials for whitening products dominate the airwaves and run around the clock, each time promoting the confidence-boosting superiority and beautifying qualities of porcelain white skin. They are generally Khmer-dubbed commercials from Thailand, Japan, Korea, and other light-skinned Asian countries. The top three most memorable ones go something like this. A young Thai woman is sitting on a beach reading a book. She discovers a good-looking man smiling at her. Self-conscious of her not-so-white skin, she goes home and dabs her face with whitening cream. The next time she sees the young man, he pulls her bench closer to his. Her skin shines white, and the two longingly gaze at each other as though they are the two happiest beings on earth. 2. A white-skinned Japanese flight attendant steps down from the Jap bridge to be greeted by a dark-skinned Japanese flight attendant who admires the whiteness of her skin. The dark-skinned flight attendant asks the light-skinned flight attendant how she got her skin to be porcelain white. The woman tells her the brand of whitening cream she uses. The next time they see each other, they both look brightly white. They beam with pride as they walk shoulder to shoulder, heads held high. 3. A tall, svelte Asian woman steps out amid the crowd and her trench coat bursts away from her body, revealing her bright white skin that is wrapped in a scant, tight, purple mini-dress. With an air of pride and jubilation, she parades herself among the young men and women who are awestruck by her stunningly bright white body. Pale skin is so glamorized in Cambodia that it is demoralizing. I get it. As someone who lives in the United States, I have more freedom to be myself. It is easy for me to parachute into the motherland every other year and be irritated with those who valorize whiteness and try so hard to fit into the shallow ways of mainstream Cambodian society. They are the ones who have to live with the daily prejudice and discrimination. Very briefly, I got a taste of such prejudice and discrimination as my own skin began to darken under the scorching sun of Cambodia. Grocery and restaurant workers would not look at me or talk to me and had their employees, whom they pu publicly chastised and denigrated, tell me the prices. They threw their change at me and turned their backs on me as if I were beneath them. Interesting. When my family first came to the United States, in grammar school particularly, a group of kids, especially boys, taunted me, harassed me, pushed me around, and beat me up. 
They routinely called to me, Hey Ching Chong, while they pulled up their eyes to make them look tight and slanted. They made weird sounds under the pretense that they were speaking to me in my native tongue. Yet, here I was in the motherland, being treated with contempt by the very people who would have been ridiculed, just like me in the Chicago of the early 1980s. Oh, the irony. Fanny confessed that she felt prejudice and discrimination when she first left the countryside to study in the city. Light-skinned girls normally hung out together and shunned dark-skinned girls, she said, and they made fun of us because we spoke with a country accent. Having felt that, I thought that she might have learned from it, but instead, I find her giving in to Cambodian society in full force. Perhaps she cannot escape the pressure even as an adult. She does everything to fit in, whitening her skin with a poisonous chemical and straightening her hair with harsh chemicals that smell so bad that her husband once jokingly told her to sleep in another bed. For goodness sake, even monks who are not supposed to be concerned with superficialities or attached to material things whiten their skin. I have asked around about why Cambodians are so obsessed with having pale skin. The answer... It's common among Asian cultures to find light skin more alluring and attractive. Light skin means a person comes from a wealthy family, that he or she spends most of the time indoors and works less than others. Light-skinned people live sheltered lives. Light-skinned girls have more chances to marry and an increased likelihood of marrying into rich families. Meanwhile, dark-skinned people are associated with a lower class because they must work most of their lives, often under the blazing sun. People seem to be proud of not having to work, or work as much as others, and thumb their noses at people of lower classes. Some even feel offended by me questioning their quest for light skin. It is our freedom, they say. Is it really a freedom of choice when people don't know all the facts and risks surrounding whitening products? Are they really acting on their free will? Or are they being brainwashed by the sophistication of mass marketing? Moreover, just because certain dark-skinned people voluntarily prefer light skin to their own, why should the rest of us, who are comfortable in our own skin, have to put up with this light skin is beautiful nonsense? You have such a nice tan. Within the context of the Asian diaspora, my experiences of colorism are not unique. In fact, much of what I describe is rooted in the social science literature, both historic and contemporary, on the acculturation of Asian immigrants to the United States and other Western countries. But my stories of learning about and distinguishing differences in shades of skin color began in the Philippines more than four decades ago. I was born in the tropical climate of Luzon, the largest island in the Philippines, and the sun's rays were my constant companion. Under the bright and often blazing sun in the province of Pampanga, approximately 80 kilometers northwest of Manila, my chosen playground was the outdoors. My memory bank is full of childhood adventures around our property and bike rides in our subdivision. Unlike my lighter-skinned older sister, who spent most of her time indoors as a bookworm, I enjoyed outdoor adventures that added another shade of brown to my skin. 
And since this was the 1970s when words such as skin cancer or sunscreen were not part of my vocabulary, and certainly uncommon in the Philippines, I mostly cared about following my mother around the yard as she tended to her plants. I loved climbing trees, riding my bike in the neighborhood, creating make-believe games, and foraging for fruits that filled nearly half the acreage of our property. Coconuts, bananas, guayabano, cereza, guava, santol, and macopa. I was too young and oblivious to recognize that lighter skin was preferred and valued. I recall hearing from the others the Tagalog phrase, an itim mo, you're so black, dark. The direct translation to English sounds rather insulting, but it is usually said in jest, though it wasn't meant as a compliment either. As a child, I also learned terms like mestiza and mestizo, which referred to Filipinos with mixed ancestry. The message, in part due to 300 years of colonization by Spain, followed by another century of American colonization and neo-colonial domination, was this. Being mestiza, mestizo is equated with lighter skin, a sharper nose bridge, and Eurocentric features, and hence is associated with beauty. To my mother's credit, she never prevented me from playing outdoors, nor did I feel inferior because I had brown skin. As I was growing up, she would often tell me, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The message of light is beautiful was the sentiment of others, and not of my immediate family. Before I turned nine years old, my playground drastically changed. As with many stories of migration, my family immigrated to San Francisco in September of 1979 for better life opportunities. The move to America created a dramatic cultural shift on so many levels, including the way I viewed being a Filipina. The focus shifted away from my brown skin due in part to San Francisco's cold and foggy climate which kept me shrouded in layers of long-sleeved shirts, jackets, and pants. Rather than skin color, other previously non-racialized aspects of my physicality took center stage. At nine, I was the recipient of unwanted criticisms about my accent, despite speaking grammatically correct English, my flat nose, and my round face. Eventually and unintentionally, my Filipino accent disappeared. But downward social mobility and not being white increasingly began to influence my formative years of growing up in San Francisco. My race and ethnicity, along with my social class, suddenly mattered in a way that they had never before. As renters in the 1980s, we often moved to several of the city's ethnically diverse neighborhoods, Glen Park, Excelsior, Ingleside. The image often touted of San Francisco is one of diversity, as a microcosm for the rest of the country, though this idealistic image masks its extreme social class divide and racial residential segregation. As a teen, I recall being dumbfounded on several occasions when a white person called me a derogatory name, you stupid fucking chink and wondering to myself why he had mistaken me for the wrong Asian ethnicity. 
On another occasion, while I walked along Ocean Beach, a white man yelled to me, unprovoked, Go back to where you came from. In my naivete, I thought to myself, I live in San Francisco, so where should I go? Clearly, I had yet to understand the meaning and consequences of being Asian in America. Racial and ethnic identities became more pronounced in high school. My school had a predominantly African-American student body with only a handful of white students, and the divide between racial groups was obvious. Still, I was only beginning to understand the reasons behind these divisions. In college, race was compounded by social class differences. Although I only traveled 74 miles northeast of San Francisco for school, UC Davis was a different world, though college life did not shield me from prejudice or colorism. While working on campus, I remember a comment made by a student, you have such a nice tan. While intended to be flattering, her compliment ignored the realities, complexities, and consequences of my brown skin versus her white skin. For example, the summer after my junior year, my classmate and I were selected to attend an international summer seminar in Taipei, Taiwan. This was a total of six U.S. delegates. All were white except for me. While we were in Taipei, there was a temporary job opportunity to make some quick cash by teaching English to locals. My blonde American friend was immediately hired. When I expressed interest in the job, I was told I did not look American. To many Asians, as with many Americans, American means white. It was not until the fall quarter of my junior year that I discovered courses in Asian American studies and sociology, which helped me make sense of social inequities based on race, class, gender, and sexuality. Much has been written about Filipinos and their colonial mentality to explain the value placed on light skin and anything American, brand names, for example. Others argue that it is not about reverse ethnocentrism or reverence for colonists and all things American or white, but rather the association of dark skin with the lower classes of Filipino society. Regardless of the reason, those with mestizo-mestizo features are still celebrated and highly regarded in the Filipino community. Skin whitening and bleaching products remain alarmingly popular and in high demand, despite documented harmful health risks. As a teenager, during one of my summer visits back to the Philippines, I tried one of these skin whitening products. Papaya soap was the craze at the time, and I was attracted to the orange soap bar, and its sweet scent reminded me of the fruit. I was curious and tried it, but was not immediately convinced of its efficacy. After a few uses, I stopped. Perhaps it was partly my laziness. Where am I going to buy this product back in the United States? How long do I have to use this to see results? Do I have to scrub hard? I was not committed to the time and effort required for this whitening experiment. And, and because no one was pressuring me to use the soap, I stopped. Obsession with skin color is not unique to Filipinos or to Asians more broadly speaking. Studies also show that among Blacks and Latinos, light skin affords social, economic, educational, and health privileges and advantages. There is evidence, too, that lifetime experiences of microaggressions and discrimination 
for those with dark skin have negative effects on physical and mental health. And colorism extends beyond skin phenotype. Physical and facial characteristics are also important and tend to be the first markers of race and ethnicity. There are numerous examples of microaggressions related to my race, gender, and sexual orientation. I have been teased about whether I eat monkey or dog, frequently told that I speak English well without a foreign accent, and encouraged to find a good husband and have children. And I have come across non-Filipinos who, to relate to me through language, blurt out curse words in Tagalog as if to impress me. I cannot imagine approaching someone and telling them I know English by dropping F-bombs. One of my former students once told me matter-of-factly that he knew I was Filipino because of my flat nose. I don't believe his intent was malicious, but his words were not meant as a compliment either. I explained to him why his compliment er, comment was inappropriate, though I understand we are all socialized to associate physical attributes with racial and ethnic groups, and we are taught to value certain characteristics as the ideal standard of beauty, especially for women. In America, this means slim frame, well-proportioned body, long hair, large breasts, and light skin. Cosmetic surgery is the norm nowadays in Asia, the United States, and worldwide, including making one's nose bridge more pronounced, rhinoplasty, double eyelid surgery, breast augmentation, Botox injections, and so on. Certainly, there has been a movement toward challenging and redefining traditional standards of beauty, for example, Dove's Real Beauty campaign, an increasing representation of plus-size women in magazines and advertisements. But mainstream media, including digital and print, continues to promote narrow definitions of beauty, thin bodies and light white skin. The glaring omission of people who resemble me in magazines, on television, and in movies is so blatantly obvious that on the rare occasions when people of my race or ethnicity are featured, there is cause for celebration. I find it refreshing and validating when Filipinos, Filipino-Americans, are positively represented in the media, or represented at all. While some physical and facial features can be altered, my skin cannot. Even today, my brownness still makes me a foreign object in parts of the United States, and is most evident with the stares and questioning looks of what are you, and why are you here in my neighborhood? However, my brown skin has also served as valuable cultural capital. I can pass for other Asian ethnicities and even as Native American. While conducting ethnographic fieldwork in the western part of New Mexico as a doctoral student, I must have passed as native because I was often greeted with Ya ti hello in Navajo, and Navajos often assumed I spoke their language. I blended in easily, and one Navajo family adopted me into theirs. A genuine friendship formed, followed by regular invitations to their home and sweat lodge, and to participate in their family ceremonies. It was comforting to be welcomed into their family community. My perspective on race and brownness is largely informed by 
personal experiences and my profession as a sociologist. Now in my middle age, I can emphatically declare that I fully embrace my brownness and queerness and the intersection of my social identities. In doing so, I am not ignorant of the ongoing assault towards women, specific racial and ethnic minority groups, the poor and working classes, and the LGBTQ community. Pride in our own skin should be intrinsic, but we do not live in a post-racial America. Prejudice rarely stays contained within people's attitudes and sometimes leads to blatant discrimination and acts of violence. In fact, considering the 2016 presidential election that has emboldened many to spew hateful rhetoric, especially around race, sexual orientation, and immigration status, my response has been immediate and assertive. Together with my allies from all shades of color, I am empowered and remain steadfast in using my voice simultaneously to speak out against injustices and to change the discourse on race, especially given countless news headlines that are indicative of the kind of toxic racial landscape that we now occupy. When countries populated by black and brown-skinned peoples are singled out and Haiti and Africa are referred to as shithole countries by a sitting American president, and the insistence to build a physical divisive wall on the U.S.-Mexican border pervades the news. I know that shades of color matter. I have the voice to challenge not only dominant racist ideologies, but also all shades of prejudice. Being a queer, brown, Filipina-American breast cancer survivor anchors me, as it should, because there are some of the most salient characteristics of my authentic self, and I have no desire whatsoever to alter shades of my nut-brown self. Brown Arms Bing bong. I heard the doorbell ring, and I ran barefoot up to the door, stopping just short of it. I knew I wasn't supposed to open the door without mommy, so I slyly moved the curtain by the door to see who was standing on the porch. It was uncle and auntie, standing at the door patiently. Uncle was in a browned tweed jacket, and Auntie was wrapped in a delicate silk sari. I quickly scanned their arms. There they were, gift-wrapped packages in their arms. Mommy came rushing out of the kitchen, scolding me. Why didn't you open the door? You know Uncle and Auntie. I shied away bashfully, hiding behind the achol of Mommy's sari as she opened the door wide. Assalam walikum, she said. Ashan, Ashan, she exclaimed, ushering them to come inside. Say salams to uncle and auntie, she demanded of me through an embarrassed smile. I continued to hide behind her sari, refusing to greet them. Bobby, she's grown up so quickly. Where are your other girls? Auntie stroked my hair while peering around me into the house. She handed me a flat, square gift before wandering off into the house in search of my little sisters. A flat, square package. I knew by the shape what this was. My heart sank. Another little golden book for my shelf. I was eight years old and too old for these childish books. I had hoped that the long, rectangular-shaped box would be for me, but I knew it was going to be going to my little sister. 
She always got the best gifts from the aunties and uncles. Sure enough, I peeked into the living room to see Auntie helping my middle sister unwrap her gift. It was the long rectangular box. My sister was five years younger than I, with round cheeks and hazel eyes and dark brown hair. She always looked to me like a cabbage patch doll. Her skin and hair even matched the cabbage patch dolls I saw in the store. I never saw a doll that looked like me in the store. My hair was too black and my skin too dark. My sister ripped out the gift wrap excitedly. It was a peaches and cream Barbie. From behind the wall, I could see that the Barbie doll had long blonde hair, fair skin, and a beautiful billowing peach gown. She looked so sparkly and pretty. Bobby, you shouldn't have. She's too young to play with a Barbie doll. She's only four years old. Mommy hesitated. But it just, it looks just like her. I had to get it. Just look at it. She looks just like this Barbie doll. Auntie doted and fussed while pinching my sister's cheek. I looked down at my Hansel and Gretel little golden book. My sister wasn't even old enough to play with Barbie dolls. I played with my aerobic Barbie doll and day-to-night Barbie doll every day. She always got the best presents. As auntie and uncle left that night, we went to the foyer to say goodbye. Uncle lifted up my middle sister into his arms. She always loved to be carried. She had her arms around uncle's neck and a pacifier in her mouth. Take care of this one extra specially, auntie said to my parents, patting sister's hair. Her skin is so light and forsha, light-skinned. Keep her out of the sun. She's going to be so pretty when she grows up. I looked down at my brown arms, wondering if I would ever be pretty when I grew up. My mother's forearms were wide, and the skin on the back of her arms was fair. What Rishta aunties, matchmakers, would refer to as Swedish. She wasn't particularly vain about the color of her skin. Unlike the other aunties, who invested in sunscreen and whitening cream. I noticed how these aunties would remark about mom's skin color sometimes, often with envy in their voice. But mom didn't care. She was running around raising three girls and keeping our family together as we constantly moved across country due to dad's work. I would often wrap my forearms around hers and compare our skin color My dad's arms were bonier and darker, the kind of brown that resembled day-old chai, and his skin was more webbed with the creases of skin that are weather-worn. As a child, I'd compare my arms to theirs side by side. I wasn't as fair as my mother, but I wasn't as dark as my dad. I was just brown. My parents met on their wedding day in Dhaka, Bangladesh in 1978. Mom said she wasn't interested in meeting my dad before the wedding because she was going to see him all the time after they got married. What was the point, she had said. Dad's family had sent her seven proposal requests, and at the age of 23, she finally gave in because he was an engineer in Los Angeles. And maybe in America, she thought, she could pursue her master's degree. Of course, pursuing her degree didn't happen because by the time she got on the flight to move to Los Angeles to be with my dad, 
She was already four months pregnant with me. Five years later, my sister was born, and two years after that, my youngest sister was born. Dad eventually stopped being able to get engineering jobs, and our family experienced downward financial mobility. For the last 15 years of my mother's life, she worked in a booth at an airport parking lot to make ends meet. It was a low-paying teamster job, because, but because it was union, our family had health care. She'd come home from work with a forearm farmer's tan, her left arm repeatedly leaving her booth to collect money from cars, only to become darkened by the blazing Southern California sun. When she'd get home in those later years, she'd talk tiredly about how brown her arms got, how hot the sun was. She would roll up her sleeves and stretch her forearm out in front of my face to show me the color of her skin now, both in awe and in sadness. She was less concerned about her vanity by then. For her, it became more of a mark of how hard her life had become. I didn't really think about what color I was until I started preschool. When we drew portraits of ourselves, everyone used peach crayons to color their skin. I wanted to, too. That's not what color your skin is, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl sitting next to me said. Your skin is brown, so you use the brown crayon. I looked down at the brown Crayola crayon that she had placed in front of me. It was so dark. It looked nothing like my skin. It looked like the color of poo. I started sulking, and the teacher came over to ask me what was wrong. I told her I wasn't the color of the brown crayon, but I wasn't the color of the peach crayon, so what color was I supposed to color myself? We laid out all the skin-colored crayons in front of me. Brown, peach, raw umber, apricot, sepia, burnt sienna, and even tan. I tested out all the colors on my piece of paper, and we decided that the tan crayon would work the best. Mom, we're going to play in my room, I screamed while galloping up the stairs with my new neighbor friend, Margaret. We were eight years old, and she had come over to play Barbie dolls with a backpack full of dolls. I was excited to play with all of her fancy dolls. My middle sister had broken off the heads and permanent markered all over most of my dolls. The only ones I had been able to salvage was aerobics Barbie in the blue leotards and that's because it was bendable in the hands of a four-year-old terror. Margaret and I dumped out all of our dolls on the carpeted floor of my bedroom. Her collection was impressive. She had all the expensive Barbie dolls with the flouncy dresses and big blonde curly hair. She also had a couple of Ken dolls, which my mom refused to buy for me. They were key to playing house. She had all the multiple outfits and the hot pink Barbie convertible. My set of dolls looked meek in comparison. And my mom wouldn't buy me clothes for my dolls and would instead sew me simple simple summer dresses using the scraps of leftover cloth from her sewing projects. Let's play house, Margaret said bossily. I reached for a Barbie with beautiful long blonde hair and a bright pink dress. You can't play with that one. You can play with this one. She grabbed the blonde doll out of my hand and threw me a brown doll. Why? I said, confused. 
When I played Barbie with my other friends, it never went like this. Because you're brown, you can only play with the brown Barbie dolls. I looked down at the doll in my hand. It was an old-looking Barbie doll with a pointed chin and painted sleepy eyes. The color of the plastic skin was what Crayola might call burnt umber. The brown hair had a bob cut and weird bangs. It looked like a vintage doll from the 1960s. I'd never even seen a doll like this in any toy store. I looked at the pile of Barbie dolls in the middle of the room. They were all peach-skinned Barbie dolls. By that logic, I was too brown to play with any of them. I silkily reached for my aerobics Barbie doll from the pile. You can't play with that, Margaret bossily snapped. Only I can play with that one. Her skin is peach like mine. The rest of the playdate, as Margaret played with all the pretty Barbie and Ken dolls with the fancy outfits and convertible cars, I played in a corner with the brown-skinned doll, dressing her in hand-sewn dresses. When she left that afternoon, she left behind the brown-skinned Barbie doll at my house. She didn't want it anymore. Hopes for my daughter. As I write this, my daughter lies sleeping next to me. I occasionally take breaks to stroke her cheek or run my fingers through her hair, amazed and truly in love. When I found out that I was expecting her, I couldn't even imagine how my life would change. Now, when she is almost three months old, I look forward to every day together. One of the biggest wonders I had was what she would look like. With her mix of Indian, Vietnamese, and European ancestry, it was literally a toss-up. But when she arrived, I could see a little bit of everything in her. I was so happy to see how beautiful she was. Her thick black hair, almond-shaped brown eyes, and full lips. She got the best of her mommy and daddy. I could not help but be thankful for her light brown complexion, one that marks her as just minority enough, but will not stigmatize her as much as my dark complexion does me. I know that life is challenging for everyone, but hopefully no more for her because of the color of her skin. For my daughter, I have many hopes. I hope that my daughter will be more accepted by her extended family than I was. Growing up, I knew that my family loved me unconditionally, but it only felt like they loved me because they loved my parents. My cousins would play with me, but even at a young age, I could sense that the connection was not entirely there. Like me, they grew up understanding that Indian society favored light skin. How could they love me if they didn't like the way I looked? Like them, I was pressured into using skin lightening creams throughout my adolescence. Even today, I feel disconnected from many of them. I hope that my daughter will be more comfortable with her relatives and always feel their full love and support. I hope that my daughter will come to know her Indian heritage more than I did. My mother was sensitive to her own skin discrimination in India, and she did not want her daughter, who was much darker, to suffer. Even in social settings with my parents' Indian friends, the children would treat me differently. So, my mother kept me from children's activities at the Hindu temple, from Bharat Natyam dance classes, and in general from the Indian-American community. She made the choice to isolate me rather than have me experience the isolation from them. 
This resulted in a true disconnect from my Indian identity. I hope that my daughter will be embraced by her communities and develop a strong identity with whichever group she chooses to align herself. I hope that my daughter will see herself represented in the media much more than I did. As I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, the only character that represented my ethnicity to me and to others was Apu from The Simpsons. Heavily accented and overly foreign, which even today symbolizes the ways in which people mock me. Beyond this caricature, there were no representations that looked like me or reflected my experiences as the child of Indian immigrants. The representations of women that I saw were also limited, with virtually all of them adhering to the same Western beauty ideals, light skin, light eyes, light hair, and serving as a reminder that I did not look like them. Today, these representations have improved to a degree, but the Eurocentric beauty ideal and whitewashed characters remain strong. I hope that my daughter will not be influenced by these stereotypes and images as significantly as I was. I hope that my daughter will not be stigmatized in school as I was. Because of the class status of my parents, I exclusively attended private schools where racial diversity was very limited. As I was surrounded by mostly white students and white teachers, my brown skin made me stand out and, at times, triggered experiences of overt discrimination. For example, soon after my father died, a substitute middle school teacher ridiculed me in front of the entire class for a messy workspace. Since I had had no prior interaction with this instructor, and my workspace was not any messier than any other students, I felt intentionally targeted. A few years later in high school, I was asked by my history teacher to read out loud an excerpt from the textbook written in Swahili, presumably because she assumed that my dark skin meant that I was African American. I was embarrassed as I struggled with the passage in front of the class. Today, I understand that these experiences were intended to single me out. I hope that my daughter will be judged by her merits, not by her perceived identity or skin color. I hope that my daughter will have an easier time making friends than I did. I have many memories of being excluded by groups of girls and being judged when I took the initiative to try to join them. I always wondered what was wrong with me. I didn't understand it back then, but I know now that their behaviors were simply a reflection of what they were taught, that I was not one of them. To them, I did not matter, and I was not worth getting to know. I felt invisible. Ultimately, I know that my daughter is still brown, and she may have experiences like this. But I hope that her environments will be much more diverse, and that because of her lighter shade, she will not be viewed with the same disdain that I was. I hope that my daughter will find love sooner than I did. In the same way that teachers and peers judged me, for my dark skin and different appearance, so too did the people I liked. I put myself out there with confidence, only to be rejected over and over again. When I got older, many of the people I dated told me frankly that I was good enough for now, but not good enough to bring home to their parents. I now understood what they meant when I look back at whom they dated after me, 
and with whom they eventually partnered and had children. I sought out love for many years until I was much older and found my partner who sought me out. It was worth it in the end to have this family, but it did not come easily. Regardless of whom my daughter chooses to love, I hope that she will not be judged by anything more than her personality and what she has to offer to someone else. I hope that, unlike me, my daughter will have the ability to be whatever she wants to be when she grows up. In graduate school, I was made to feel that my contributions were not as good as my white peers. I struggled in classes with professors who did not give me the same attention as they gave to them, and I was less successful as a result. I worked hard, only to struggle even more on the academic job market. Despite my brown skin, I struggle with being seen as not diverse enough for jobs in my area of expertise, which is race and ethnicity. As an Indian American professional, I am often not seen as someone who has experienced discrimination and microaggressions. As a result, some people think that I am unqualified to speak, teach, or write on these subjects. In a racialized black-white social system that surrounds me, my very real experiences are often negated or trivialized, especially by whites. Ideally, I do not want my daughter to experience any of these struggles, and I hope that her exposure to them is much more limited. Above all, I hope that my daughter does not have a life as hard as mine. In our society, everyone is judged by his or her physical appearance, and ascribed an identity based on it. Dark-skinned people are neither seen nor recognized, nor taken as seriously as those born with light skin. We remain invisible in a society that values a beauty ideal that does not look like us. My entire life, society has told me that my dark skin means that I cannot be beautiful. Fortunately, my daughter is much more beautiful than I. Part two, privilege. Light skin is privileged over dark. The growing body of research on colorism among African-Americans, Latinx populations in the United States, and Asian-Americans reveals that one's shade of skin is linked to educational attainment, employment, occupational status, income, wealth, physical health, mental health, and marriageability, as well as perceptions of intelligence, social class, trustworthiness, and attractiveness. In a 2017 piece titled, I'm a light-skinned Chinese woman and I experience pretty privilege, written for Teen Vogue, Ray Chen describes the skin shade privilege that she experiences in China and in Canada. In both contexts, strangers often tell her she is pretty and then f typically follow the compliment with a remark about the fairness of her skin. She writes, whether I'm in Canada or China, I hear an echo every time my fair skin is complimented. There's always an implication that someone else's dark skin is being simultaneously policed, knowingly or not. Mayako has always been my sister, whose skin was a beautiful buttery tan color growing up. Whenever one of our aunties, friends, or acquaintances saw us together and complimented my fair skin, they were also tacitly implying because of her skin was darker, she was less notable. 
In this section, authors examine their privilege or lack thereof based on their skin color. For some, their skin is a social liability and stigma, but for others, like Ray Chen, it is an enviable asset. Rhea Manglani, Indian American for example, learned from her mother at a young age that she is blessed with beautiful skin, and she writes about her personal experiences with light skin privilege. For her, privilege means compliments, never criticism of her skin, and growing up in blissful ignorance of the struggles of her darker-skinned South Asian classmates. As scholar Peggy McIntosh writes in her pioneering work on race privilege titled Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, privilege is often invisible to the privileged, and those born into privilege typically live in a state of obliviousness to their unearned advantages. Many, like Rhea, who have light skin, may be unaware of the privileges that their skin confers, while those with dark skin do not have the same luxury of ignorance. Society repeatedly reminds them of their skin color and its associated stigma. Rosalie Chan, Chinese-Filipina-American, similarly describes her light skin privilege and how her skin is an asset in parts of Asia but also in the United States. In the United States, she is perceived as foreign, but she understands that because of her light hue, she is seen as non-threatening as compared to fellow brown-skinned Asian Americans, for whom racial profiling and discrimination are more common, often due to Islamophobia. Rosalie recognizes that colorism privileges lighter-skinned Asian American ethnic groups over those with darker skin, and Julia Mitsutani, multiracial Japanese white American, similarly describes the colorism that exists across Asian ethnic groups. As a self-described hafu, a Japanese term often used to describe someone who is multiracial and half-Japanese, she describes light skin privilege in her Japanese-American community and in the United States, though she also recognizes that Asian ethnic groups differentiate themselves from each other on the basis of skin color, further privileging her because she is of Japanese ancestry. According to Julia, Japanese Americans have shunned darker-skinned Asian ethnic groups, such as Indians, Filipinx, and Cambodians, to access social benefits connected to whiteness. Notably, discrimination between Asian ethnic groups is seen in Asia as dark-skinned Asian ethnic groups face discrimination in East Asia. Filipinos in Korea, for instance, report significant discrimination from taking a taxi to renting a house and landing a job, and even frequently encounter pointing, disrespect, and derisive language in public spaces. Even in America, colorist thinking has fashioned a hierarchy among Asian American groups, whereby those ethnic groups with lighter skin, i.e. East Asians, are relatively more privileged than those with darker tones, South and Southeast Asians. Perhaps this stems from prejudices rooted in Asian ethnic cultures, but perhaps it also derives from biases found in the larger U.S. culture whereby light skin is privileged over dark. In, Asian, in American mainstream media outlets, for instance, brown Asians are often invisible as compared to East Asian ethnic groups, 
and E.J. R. David, professor of psychology at the University of Alaska, argues that South and Southeast Asians are often excluded from television, magazines, and newspapers in favor of lighter-skinned East Asian groups, such as Koreans, Japanese, and Chinese. Perhaps this is the case because lighter-skinned Asian ethnic groups are more palatable to the white masses than those whose ancestries originate in places such as India, Cambodia, the Philippines, or other parts of South or Southeast Asia. Asian, Asian American visibility in American media is already quite low as they are typically underrepresented, though Asian Americans with dark skin are nearly absent altogether. In 2016, for example, the New York Times released a video about the experiences of Asian Americans, though the newspaper was widely criticized for privileging the perspectives of East Asians. The voices of South and Southeast Asians were nearly absent, though they compose approximately half of the Asian American population. In an open letter to the New York Times in response to the video, David writes that even though this is 2016, people still don't understand that hashtag brown Asians exist, calling out the paper for marginalizing South and Southeast Asian Americans to the point of invisibility. In 2018, the film Crazy Rich Asians was heralded as a watershed moment for Asian representation in Hollywood for its all-Asian cast, though critics noted that South Asians were conspicuously missing from the story. This is curious given that the film was set in Singapore, where nearly 22% of the population is either Malay or Indian. One critic asks, where are the brown people, and argues that while the film is the first in 25 years to feature an all-Asian cast, it presents a single version of Asia that is palatable for Hollywood audiences. Would audiences embrace a darker-skinned Asian cast? I have no definitive answer, though their current invisibility in American media suggests no. Even looking beyond desperate, disparate representations in American media between light and dark-skinned Asian Americans, hate crimes toward South Asians in the United States are reportedly on the rise. Asian Americans as a whole are frequent targets of verbal harassment, brutal attacks, and even murder, probably because their attackers perceive them as other or as perpetually foreign due to physical characteristics that set them apart for, from the white majority. South Asians in particular may be further targeted because of one, their brown skin color, which makes them relatively more visible in the American population, and two, larger anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States, which stigmatizes anyone who looks stereotypically Middle Eastern. Since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, Islamophobia has been particularly intense in the United States, and South Asian Americans have been targets of racial profiling in airports, for example, and at the extreme, brutal violence. In fact, the first victim of a retaliatory killing post 9-11 was a brown-skinned Indian sheikh, Belbir Singh Sodhi, who was shot and killed while pumping his gas in the days immediately following the 9-11 attack. 
Though Asian Americans are collectively marginalized and at times on the receiving end of racial bias, some Asian ethnic groups may be more or less privileged than others because of their skin shade. Because dark skin is stigmatized, brown-skinned Asian American ethnic groups find themselves marginalized in Asia, within the Asian community, and in the larger United States. Finally, authors in this collection of essays reveal that privilege is shaped not only by one's particular shade of skin, but by one, the context in which one is viewed, whether in the United States, Asia, or another part of the world, and two, the ethnicity and race of the audiences before them. For instance, though colorism is global, region of the world matters. Sonal Nakur, Indo-Canadian, recognizes her privilege in Indian circles, as well as in India and Saudi Arabia, because of her light shade. But she also understands that this privilege dissipates in American and Canadian contexts, where people of color have historically been relegated to second-class citizenry. In the United States in particular, she contends that the bar for being non-white is very low, and privilege more elusive for her, even though her skin is light. Finally, Brittany Ota Malloy, multiracial Japanese Black American, observes that her privilege is heavily dependent on her audience. She describes her experience of colorism as a magnetic repulsion wherein her perceived skin color produces messages that are in constant conflict with each other. She writes that colorism is a problem among Asian Americans and African Americans, and the politics of skin color in both of her racial communities live within her. Her dark skin disadvantages her with Asian American audiences, though the same shade benefits her in the black community. In short, skin color privilege is not straightforward or intrinsic, but rather is situational and fluid, conferring advantages upon those of Asian descent in some contexts, while simultaneously disadvantaging them in others. Blessed with beautiful skin, I'm a light-skinned South Asian woman who has spent most of my life not having to think too much about skin color. As I was growing up, family members would comment about how fair I was, and my mom usually beamed with pride. I never paid much attention to the color of my skin, because it generally garnered compliments, never criticism. I didn't see myself as different from the other Indian kids I grew up with, and certainly, I didn't think that I looked much different from most of the white or Latino people in my neighborhood. I rarely felt like an outsider. I merely thought my skin tone was normal and nothing remarkable. Because of my own light skin privilege, I was blissfully unaware of the struggles that some of my classmates faced in their own communities. Of course, my blissful ignorance did not last forever. In middle school, my school was about 80% Asian. An Indian friend of mine would slather on sunscreen every day after school and say something along the lines of, Ria, I can't end up Kali, black, and offer me sunscreen. I used to gleefully reject her sunscreen and talk about joining a new sports team to get tanner. 
Upon meeting one of my South Asian friends in an after-school program, I thought she had a striking beauty to her. Sharp eyebrows, a thin nose that I was jealous of, big boobs that I was even more jealous of, and an air of confidence that high school me couldn't muster. But there was something off about her face. I realized that the eyebrows I admired were drawn on, and her skin color was splotchy. That's when I realized that she had been bleaching her skin. It shocked me to my core. The following year, another friend who is Filipina shared with me that she also used to bleach her skin. I was ill-equipped to talk to her about any of this, and simply nodded along as she complained about her family's obsession with fairness. It made me think of my mother's words to me. You're blessed with beautiful skin. During my college years, my classmates shared stories of their aunties, calling them ugly, or their parents not letting them play sports for fear of darkening their skin. A family trip to India to visit extended family further opened my eyes. I noticed that commercials for Fair and Lovely, a skin lightening cream, routinely played on television much like the number of weight loss commercials I see in America. I was amazed by the spectrum of lightness that the commercial endorsed. The lightest shade the product promised was a good shade or even two lighter than my own. Even I, someone who has lived largely unaffected by colorism, found that these commercials hit an insecurity that I didn't realize I had. Shy Hay Wear sunscreen, my mom said. You don't want to shy hay. Shy hay means literally to dry until one turns black. In Asia and among Asian diasporas worldwide, smooth, light skin is the ideal. Those with dark skin are seen as coarse, ugly, low class. When I would return from the pool in summers, my mom would irritably eye my tanned arms and legs. Your skin has become too black, she'd say. When we looked at Christmas photos, she'd say, look at how white your skin was in the winter. Don't stay in the sun too much. This is how I learned that dark skin is shunned in my community, while light skin is seen as a marker of beauty. In fact, I am not a dark-skinned Asian American. I'm of Chinese heritage my mom from Taiwan, and my dad from a Chinese family in the Philippines. Because of my Chinese ancestry, I have light skin, and I find that the color of my skin is an asset both in Asia and in the United States. When I visit my family in the Philippines, I often feel out of place, though admittedly privileged, because I am an American, but also because I am light-skinned. Lighter skin implies high class, education, and the privilege of staying indoors while the darker-skinned masses work in the streets and darken under the tropical sun. On Filipino TV, all the celebrities have pale skin. Every other commercial is a cream that promises to lighten or whiten Filipino skin making one's skin as white as the beloved celebrity flashing a wide smile on screen. 
When I go to the beauty aisle in stores, I see endless shelves of whitening products. I've also noticed these products in other parts of Asia. When I travel to Taiwan and China, I see the same commercials for skin whitening products and face masks, even though the population typically has light skin. When I studied in China, I was warned that some brands of body wash and face wash in stores have bleach in them. Chinese women are conditioned to value light skin, and they go to great lengths to whiten their skin, even if it means using products with dangerous chemicals. As in Asia, colorism is prevalent in the United States. My Asian American friends often use face masks and makeup to lighten their skin. They go through daily face washing rituals to ensure that their skin stays smooth and light. Despite colorism in the United States, these cosmetic products come not from the United States, but from Asian countries like South Korea, Japan, and India. I also find that colorism is rampant in the United States beyond Asian American communities. Colorism affects most communities of color in America, black, Latino, and even affects how these groups view each other, including how they view Asian Americans. In the United States, for instance, people, white and otherwise, typically have a one-dimensional image of Asian Americans. When people talk about Asian Americans, I find that they are usually referring to those who look just like me. Chinese, light skin, black hair, almond-shaped, brown eyes. Completely erasing those who diverge from this image, such as darker-skinned Asians. When they encounter Asian Americans who don't match their stereotype, for example, someone from Southeast Asia with dark skin and round eyes, they are often confused, trying to comprehend the anomaly before them. These one-dimensional images held by most Americans often stem from American media. Asian Americans are rarely represented in television and film, but when they are presented, they are whitewashed or uniformly light-skinned. There's a long history of Asian whitewashing in film, dating back to the era of silent film when white actress Mary Pickford played the Asian lead in Madame Butterfly, 1915, but whitewashing continues in modern-day movies as well. In 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness, British white actor Benedict Cumberbatch was cast as the villain Khan Noonien Singh, an Indian character. In the 2015 romance film Aloha, Emma Stone, a white actress, plays a mixed-race character, Alison Ying, who is supposed to be of Hawaiian and Asian heritage. And in the 2017 movie Ghost in the Shell, Scarlett Johansson, another white actress, portrayed Major Motoko Kusanagi, who was originally written as a Japanese character. In all of these cases, Asian characters are whitewashed for the white audiences. Even when those of Asian ancestry play Asian characters, they are almost always light-skinned. Lucy Liu, Daniel Day Kim, Sandra Oh, and in many cases, multiracial with European ancestry.
Ryan Potter, Jordan Connor, Katie Chang, Sonoya Mizuno. In 2016, the New York Times published an online video about Asian Americans, sharing their stories about the racism they face every day. Yet most of the commentators were East Asian and light-skinned. The voices of darker-skinned Asians, such as those from South Southeast Asia, were excluded. Even though Filipinos and Indians are the second and third highest percentage of Asian Americans, respectively, and despite the fact that they arguably have important stories to tell, given the value placed on light skin in the United States, because I embody the stereotype of an Asian American, light-skinned East Asian, I understand that I benefit from colorism in the United States. When Asian American organizations are formed, I know that they will include me. They will call themselves Yellow Power or Yellow Peril, not realizing that they are excluding darker-skinned Asians who may self-identify as brown. When I walk down the street or drive in my car, I do not get racially profiled as do some of my brown Asian American brothers and sisters. In 2015, a 57-year-old dark-skinned Indian man, Suresh Bai Patel, was beaten and partially paralyzed by Alabama police. They had been called by a neighbor reporting the suspicious behavior of a skinny black man lurking in the area. He was taking his morning walk, and while people may see me as foreign because I am Asian. They do not see me as dangerous. When I go to the airport, I do not experience the effects of Islamophobia and undergo extra security checks, like those with brown skin. I move through space under the gaze of people who think I'm foreign but also non-threatening. I listen to what my mom says. I still wear sunscreen and protect my skin. But when I hear the words "shy hey," I cringe. In the Asian American community, in our attitudes and in our language, we demonize darker skin, and we need to do better. In the United States, we also need to do better. Vilifying dark skin must stop. Whiteness is slippery. Sprawled on the couch in the warm home of a close friend. I was scrolling through music videos with her two children when the younger of them, Nolan, bounced up and began to teach me some of his dance moves. Nolan's curly dark hair bounced on his forehead in front of his eyes, as his lanky nine-year-old body shuffled across the living room's wooden floors, showing me what the white boy dance looked like. I laughed and blurted out that white people don't dance like that. Nolan turned to me incredulously, with wide eyes and a slack-jawed mouth. "Wait, are you white?" I had never been asked that question before in my life. The definition of who is considered white is one that has shifted and varied over the course of this country's history, dependent upon time and place, and rooted in the calculated decisions of those in power to subordinate people of color. My father is Japanese, and his heritage was visibly passed on to me 
through my shock of black hair that sticks out thick and straight, and my facial features that render me ethnically ambiguous, but ethnic nonetheless. White men, whether through court systems, media, or law, are the ones who decide who is white, and I have never been mistaken for a white woman by any white man. To Nolan's credit, he isn't white either, but both of us have white mothers, and it was in that moment that he understood we shared something. We are mixed. We are the in-betweens. Not quite one and not quite the other. We often identify according to how the world sees us, while painfully aware of the part of us it doesn't see. Society tries to box us into one race, though we are sometimes seen as racial impostors by members of the racial groups to which we belong. We are not black enough or Asian enough, yet we are not white enough either. Whites often perceive us as exotic, and we are fetishized by those who wish to investigate the unknown through their sexual exploits. We receive comments about our hair, our eyes, our skin, and comments on the jungle fever or yellow fever our parents must have had. Strangely enough, the fetishizing bleeds into Asian communities as well, except it is due to our white features. As an Asian American woman who is part white, I have Asian facial features that render me unmistakably East Asian but have light skin and double eyelids, and features that many of my Japanese friends do not have. Because of my appearance, I am treated differently than my full Asian friends, since colorism is a prominent part of many Asian communities, and my privileged treatment for simply existing proves this point. Whether I am traveling in Nepal, Thailand, Korea, or Japan, I see ads for creams that bleach and whiten skin, and for facial plastic surgery meant to whitewash Asian features. My light skin privilege gives me special treatment in these countries. I know that I am treated differently than my darker-skinned Filipino, Indian, and Japanese friends. I see it in the way that sunny days bring out umbrellas, and I see it in the funny looks I am given when I stroll down the streets soaking up the sun. I hear it from the Obakens and Obasans and Halmonis and Ajumas, aunties and grandmothers, who wag their fingers at me for not properly preserving my pale skin. I see it in the multiracial Asian white models used to promote skincare products. We are just Asian enough to be identified as Asian, Yet we have features and light skin privilege that consumers might wish to have. In the beauty industry in Japan, we are called haifu, meaning half or mixed, but usually referring to those of us who are half white. Beauty magazines have articles called How to Look Like Hafu, which really means how to look part white. It is poisonous to Asian women being constantly told that lighter skin is beautiful, and that their standard of beauty should be someone who looks like me, someone who is born to a white mother. 
The phenomenon of colorism is not only found within each of our communities, but it is also used across Asian communities. As a Japanese American, I understood what it is like being both the oppressed and the oppressor. My ancestors have been both imperialist occupiers of large swaths of Asia, as well as forced into internment camps in America by a president's executive order. Identity is complicated, and we can often hold multiple contradicting ones at the same time. While Asian Americans were segregated, just as African Americans and other people of color were before Brown versus Board of Education, we are now often a part of the effort to resegregate schools by fighting against affirmative action and throwing our black and brown counterparts under our proverbial bus. The Japanese community has at times also shunned our darker skinned Asian American counterparts from South, Southeast Asia, the Philippines, India, Cambodia, Bangladesh, and Laos. We differentiate our own skin from theirs to access societal benefits connected to whiteness. But whiteness is slippery, we must never forget. We mustn't forget that the white man defines whiteness, not us. We must remember that the definition of whiteness has shifted and changed with the turning tides, and that we must not be swept up in it. We mustn't forget the one drop rule or the Supreme Court cases of Takao Ozawa or Bhagat Singh Tind of Japanese and Indian ancestry, respectively, who are ineligible for U.S. citizenship because the court, white men, decreed that they were not white. When writing about Bhagat Sin Tind, a U.S. Army veteran who sought U.S. citizenship a few years after his honorable discharge, Justice Sutherland wrote that intermarriages produced an intermingling, destroying to a greater or less degree the purity of the Aryan blood, and that the average man knows perfectly well that there are unmistakable and profound differences between Asians and white people. Nowadays, some Americans may shudder at some such statements. Those same Americans may look at someone like me or like Nolan and believe we are the look of progress and that racism will be erased once we all become mixed. With mixing, our skin colors will blend into a honey-tinted tone and racism will be defeated. Yet, this fantasy doesn't consider the colorism that runs rampant within and between communities of color. Takao Ozawa and Bhagat Singh Tin tried to attain privilege by improving their whiteness, and it may not stop us mixed-race, lighter-skinned folk from using our privileges at the expense of others. Personally, I regard with suspicion the idea that we can fuck our way out of this country's racism and white supremacy. I am skeptical that we honey-tinted people can defeat racism while colorism continues to thrive within our own communities. We, the ambiguous, mixed-race folk, must choose whether we will be an erosion of white supremacy or a buffer for it.
Nolan doesn't understand most of this yet. His nine-year-old mind is starting to wrap around the idea of what being a person of color means in this country. He is just starting to understand what being seen as a black man may mean for him in the future, as I am still learning what being an Asian woman means for me. Having a conversation about his light skin privilege, about the colorism that exists within our own communities, will add yet another layer of complication to his identity. Understanding that colorism is yet another hurdle in the journey to end white supremacy is difficult for grown adults to grasp, let alone a child who is told by others that his identity represents racial progress. For now, we continue dancing and shuffling our feet across the floor. Regular inmates. The guard's frisking was firm and aggressive. Across my waist, under my bra, between my legs, her command announced a complete disinterest in the body parts she handled. She dumped out the contents of my purse, asked me to put my cash in my pockets, and silently put handcuffs around my wrists. She asked me my name and my birth date, then pointed me to a red corner on the floor so I could have my picture taken. Looking down at her clipboard, she asked if I was a U.S. citizen. No. That's the first time I ever heard anyone say no. What are you? Canadian. I mean, what's your race? Indian. This was my first encounter with the American criminal justice system. As an academic, I know that most scholarship offers evidence that race matters, especially if a person is a black male. But there isn't much published on the arrests of brown-skinned South Asian women. Until my arrest, I had never had a serious traffic violation, nor been particularly interested in the color of my skin. As a South Indian and fair-skinned at that, I understood that my skin color affords me privilege over black men in the criminal justice system. Yet, here I was. A few months before my firm frisking, I had been pulled over for running a stop sign in Georgia. On a quiet road just outside the university campus where I work, I wasn't speeding in the 10-mile-per-hour zone, but my driver's license, which I had to renew every four months because of the way my work visa had been arranged, had expired. Carelessness on my part. The incident would result in my first time in court, where I would stand before a very busy judge who asked me a litany of questions while sifting through a large stack of paperwork before him. I was surprised when he announced the $800 fine, 100 for rolling through a stop sign, did I actually do that, and 700 for driving with an expired license in Georgia. I was even more surprised when the judge called me back to the stand to tell me that I had committed a fingerprintable offense. I later, later learned that fingerprintable actually means that you're being arrested for driving with an expired license. The guard who opened my cell door didn't say anything when she unlocked my handcuffs 
and closed the door behind me. The exhausted young woman sitting beside me near the payphone, whose hair and nails showed traces of having been glamorous the night before, told me that she had turned herself in at 9 a.m. for the same thing. Neither of us knew how long we'd be in the jail, but she said her friend told her that they do fingerprints first thing in the morning. I sat for about three hours, staring down at my toes, then back at the wall and out the glass window to the offices, and then reluctantly back to the ticking clock in the hallway. At one point, there were five of us. The woman in the corner opposite mine was Tessie. She was in for trespassing. I'm not trying to stay here, she said. She and some friends had been sleeping over at her brother's place. The property manager came in and called the cops on us, since we weren't on the lease, she said. The cop had pointed a gun at her brother. My brother said, if you're going to shoot me, then kill me. He's been shot before, so he ain't trippin'. She told me that DeKalb County takes about 8 to 12 hours to release people. Gwinnett County was so much faster, she recalled. Yeah, my brother put up his hands and surrendered, surrendered immediately. Neither of us had taken out our guns or anything. There's no reason for me to be here. The woman beside me called someone on the payphone who told her that he didn't have the money to come get her. It sounded as though he was giving her some advice because she was listening intently. She was telling her friend about the male inmates who infrequently passed by our cell. These regular inmates keep walking around, peering in like they're going to eat us. We all laughed, and she continued, I ran into Teresa and Jazz on my way in here. Uh-huh. Yeah, my mug looks cute. I look cute today. She giggled like a little girl, but was probably more like 24. Uh-huh, yeah. We all black in here except one girl, but she ain't white either. The first time it really hit me that my skin color mattered was when my South Indian high school friend advised me to date Indian boys exclusively because at the end of the day, white boys would only see me as brown. It was the first serious dating advice I'd ever received, and it was the first time someone explicitly told me I was not white, something I knew but nothing I had ever really considered. Knowing your skin color is one thing, but knowing that your skin color matters to everyone around you is another. Years later, while teaching kindergarten in Saudi Arabia, I discovered that in some places, I was not brown either. I was teaching Arab four-year-olds the letter B one day when I asked, What is this thing in my hand? They screamed, Book! When I asked, What is this thing on the shelf? They screamed, basket. When I asked, and what is the color of my skin? They all screamed, white. There hadn't been any doubt in any of their minds, and yet they had now injected some doubt in mine. All of us in the cell were trying to keep our attention on one officer who was busily walking back and forth. 
Eventually, the officer rushed in to tell Tessie that she'd be getting out, but she would get to go home today. That's right, Tessie announced, as she sat up straight and folded her arms. Another thirty minutes later, the officer came back and called me out and pointed to a wall where I could stand and wait for my prince. Sometime later, it was another officer, then fingerprints on a scanner, then fingerprints with ink, then mugshots. After more sitting around and waiting, I was escorted out by a warm and cheerful male cop. Your wrists are so tiny, just let me know if these fall off. Several hallways later, he removed my cuffs. All right, let me get you set to go. Wait, what's the origin of your last name? Indian, I said, and that was it. The reactions from my colleagues and friends that evening told me the experience was equally unfamiliar to them. That is the craziest story I've ever heard. You're kidding me, right? Will they deport you? Are your mugshots public? Could this affect future job prospects? Did you at least get a few selfies in? Haha, wait, can you take your phone in? I'm so sorry you had to go through all this. Let me know if you need anything. I told you to hire a lawyer. Next time you should listen to me. I'm telling you, the difference between rich people and poor people in America is lawyers. Some of them were so nonchalant, but from that day on, I drove with my hands clenched on the wheel, always making full and complete stops, and always having checked, ten or twelve times a day, that I had my driver's license with me. When asked what I am, I often tell people I am Canindian, hyper-aware that while I was born and raised in Canada, I am seen as Indian. I am aware of the Queen's power, the power that built the British Commonwealth, the power that subordinated Indians for hundreds of years and relegated us to second-class citizens in our own country. But in an independent India, I am also aware that my light skin color gives me privileges and makes me relatively closer to the white man in status than my darker brothers and sisters. In other parts of the Commonwealth, including Canada, my color undoes that privilege, reminding me again that true citizens are white. Like so many with privilege, I often forget that I have it, until I don't. After all, my experiences have taught me that the bar for being non-white is very low in America. For a woman of color becomes a criminal forever the moment she enters the criminal justice system, no matter how she got there. And a brown-skinned foreigner is suspect every time she crosses a border, no matter how brown. Last month, I was crossing the U.S.-Canadian border with my visa reapplication materials in hand. The U.S. government requires original documents of my professional qualifications, so I had my PhD diploma rolled up in a case, as I always did. I also had my parole paperwork and arrest, arrest release documentation. So, I see you have this arrest, 
The Border Patrol officer said, after having asked a series of questions about the nature of my work in Atlanta, You know, you shouldn't be driving around without a license. That's just plain irresponsible. Yes, sir, I responded with some shame. I mean, you're a professor, for goodness sake. You should know better. He raised his voice. As fear began to well up in me, I reminded myself that he was just doing his job. He paused and went through my paperwork, and then looked at his computer, and then back at my paperwork. Running a stop sign, well, that is just plain reckless. He shook his head. So, when was the last time you were in Saudi Arabia? I believe it was about three years ago, I said, not expecting the question, and, to his chagrin, unclear of my exact travel dates. Ma'am, it is a simple question, and if I can't trust you to answer that, I just don't see how you can be trusted. It's clear you are unfit to be in this country. I felt a hard lump tightening in my throat. My mouth was dry and I said nothing. He took out a large metal stamp and slammed a visa in my passport. Are you sure you should really be here? There hadn't been any doubt in his mind and his words had now injected some doubt in mine.